are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. The following podcast may contain language and discussions of a frank and adult nature, and spoilers regarding the films discussed are always to be expected. Thank you for joining us. Now start the show, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on site! Okay, welcome to episode 133 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I'm your host, Lee. Everybody must die, Russell. I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Well, I do think it might be a good idea to spend more time with the girls, marking their work and so forth. Harper, how are you doing, sir? Marking their work. That is indeed something that I do with the girls on a regular basis, so... (laughs) <laughs> and making his second appearance uh, on this podcast, our good friend Gary. He's calling out the devil. Hill, how are you doing, sir? Oh, I'm here. It's late night here. I'm uh, I'm awake though. How you guys doing? Excellent. Also, also awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to be covering the Karnstein trilogy, uh, so called by some people from Hammer Films here. And uh, we're going to be doing it slightly out of order because uh, Gary does have to drop off about halfway through the show or so. So, uh, but that's fine because the movie he does have to miss, I think, will there'll probably be a consensus that it's the worst of the uh, trilogy. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're going to be looking at, of course, uh, the Vampire Lovers from 1970. We're going to be looking at Twins of Evil from 1971 and Lust for a Vampire, 1971. We have no house cleaning to do. We have nothing we particularly want to talk about that we've watched in the last little while. So we're immediately going to jump right into some podcast promos and some music, and then we'll be right back. Then you come to the right place. My name is Gary, and I'm your guide to Cinnamon Beef Podcast. Every episode, we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet! All right, calm down, calm down. Every show, I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, and listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. Oh, slapped. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. So join the insanity and please venture frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sin Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. Thank you. 
Okay, The Vampire Lovers from 1970. Come with us if you dare into a twilight world of unspeakable horror. You must die. Everybody must die. Sample, if you dare, the deadly passion of the vampire lovers. Vampire lovers, perverted creatures of the night, find their victims everywhere. The unsuspecting merrymakers in glittering ballrooms with their young and tender throats. The sleeping beauties whose troubled dreams turn into real, terrifying nightmares. That was a cat! A huge cat! For God's sake, save her! Evil hearts are still for all eternity. If one remains, yes, even one, there will be thousands more. Beware. Beware the cold caress, the kiss that kills. Beware the vampire lovers. Directed by Roy Ward Baker, uh, written by, wow, there's a lot of writers on this one. Uh, Harry Fine, Tudor Gates, who would go on to uh, write the other two films. Uh, Michael Style, based on the story by Sheridan Le Fanu, the story uh, Carmilla. Probably one of the first, if not the first vampire story, I think, probably, at least in Western literature. It precedes uh, Dracula. By several by, decades. By several decades, yeah. It is starring the lovely Ingrid Pitt as Marcilla or Carmilla or Merkala Karnstein, depending on what persona she's using. Peter Cushing as General Spielsdorf. George Cole as Roger Morton. Don Adams as the Countess. Pippa Steele as Laura. Madeline Smith as Emma Morton. Kate O'Mara. Uh, she was in Doctor Who, wasn't she? She's She was. She was yeah. the Rodney. Yeah, uh, as Mademoiselle Peridot, and Douglas Wilmer as Baron Joachim Van Hartog. Okay, so we'll just get right into it. And since you're our guest, Gary, why don't you give us your sort of initial thoughts on this one? It reminded me a lot of, I, I, I reviewed a film with the Devour guys way back when, I think it was Andy Warhol's Dracula, or was it Blood for Dracula? Is that the movie it was called? With, with Udo Kier? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Well, he, like, lived in the house, and he had, um, you know, the unclean women hang around him all the time. But this this film uh, is, like, a reverse of that. It has a, the, the female in there, and she likes to bite bare breasts. There's nothing wrong with that in this movie. Because they, they are very lovely breasts in this movie. Yeah, it's a, there's not a whole lot to it. 
besides you know her, her pursuing things and then her initially getting pursued in the end because they they find out what she's up to and yeah it's a good time i had better tower twins evil but I'm, I'm gonna leave it to you guys to get the logistics of what you guys love about this film for sure yeah and uh i did get a little ahead of myself here um i should read the synopsis i pulled from imdb as well just for the uh, benefit of the audience the countess is called away to tend to a sick friend and imposes on the general to accept her daughter mansil or marcilla as her a hocus host guest some of the villagers begin dying however and the general's daughter laura soon gets weak and pale but marcilla is there to comfort her the villagers begin whispering of vampires as Marcella finds another family on which to impose herself. The pattern repeats as Emma gets ill, but the general cannot rest and seeks the advice of Baron Hartog, who once dealt a decisive blow against a family of vampires. Well, almost. Written by Ed Sutton. That's, eh, kind of. Uh, you you kind of leave out all the juicy parts of this, though. Uh, I, I, I love reading the IMDb summaries because it's, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you've aptly described some of the movie and have completely missed anything interesting about it in your attempt to be fair or whatever. I don't know. It's it's uh but uh, it's nice that I don't have to write them anymore. So uh, I always find <laughs> you know uh, just, just rely on the labor of of uh, anonymous or pseudonym pseudonymous uh internet commenter. So yeah but uh they were distracted you... by the bouncing booze what happened when they were writing yeah. synopsis you know <laughs> it's like anytime well, there anytime there's a boo on screen it's just like and then I just stopped typing for a while and then like oh no more booze so I can oh no okay now just describe more or you know, maybe maybe Ed Sutton doesn't like bouncing boobs. Maybe that's not his thing. So that's why he didn't focus on it. And the because that probably would have been half of my uh, at least half of my synopsis would have revolved around breasts and more breasts. My, my synopsis would have been: it's a vampire movie with Ingrid Pitt hitting on a very lovely what's her name, Madeline Madeline Smith. Madeline Smith. And at one point, it's a it's a vampire film where they chase each other on a bed. And <laughs> that's why you need to see this movie. Ultimately, you know, it sells the experience much more so than the actual synopsis does. Uh, but yeah, but uh, continue there, Dan. What's your sort of uh, initial thoughts on this one? Uh, this is definitely my favorite of the three we're going to talk about today. I don't think it's the best of the three we're going to talk about today, but it's definitely my favorite. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to have a slight digression on the cinematic concept of subtlety. Because <laughs> the, there are there are ways of uh, you know you say oh lesbian vampire movie from 1971 not directed by Jess Franco and you go oh it's going to be kind of like sly winks and nods and particularly when you when you do kind of study kind of LGBTQ cinema uh, you know prior to about like last week <laughs> you know you are you are basically um, kind of taking little bits and pieces and kind of like building a, a sort of headcanon around like oh these characters are, are lesbian or whatever this film is not subtle about this at all in terms of the uh, there, there is definitely a lesbian relationship that is uh, pretty overtly stated in this film. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the best thing in the film is this relationship between Ingrid Pitt and Madeline Smith as Emma. They are gorgeous and lovely, and they have a real bond together. There's definitely a little bit of that like predatory lesbian thing kind of going on mm -hmm. in terms of Ingrid Pitt's performance, but it's really everything surrounding that that I, I kind of like lose a little bit of interest in. Like that's the stuff that I think is really interesting. It's just kind of watching them uh, kind of build their friendship and relationship. And it's not, it's not like some like hugely subtle like kind of performance. I mean, it's very, very like at one point she's literally got her on top of a bed and you know, like Ingrid Pitt's like 
almost mounting her in certain scenes. <laughs> um, I mean, she's like reading her bedtime stories and like brushing her hair and stuff, and and uh, and of course biting her breasts and nibbling on her and doing all sorts of very very lovely things that I presume that uh, women who are just friends do all the time because you know. That's what films of this time have, have uh, taught me. No, I really enjoy the film. I, I think it's it's just fun. It's really an easy watch. And I found myself just like like a smile on my face laughing through most of the film. And and I think the film intends me to kind of like treat this as a little bit of a romp. It's a little bit it's you know, it's not it's not meant to be this sort of like tense atmospheric kind of thing. It's it's definitely a more kind of a lark. It is yeah. definitely more more playful for sure. It, it's kind of interesting, like Pitt, like you said, there is a bit of the uh, predatory lesbianism angle to it, but it's not too overt. It sort of portrays Pitt in this movie, at least. Uh, I'll, I'll just make a quick quick little uh, aside here. Although this is supposed to be a trilogy, it's really not as far as continuity is concerned, because every every one of the films states the vampress uh, Carmilla. Her death as a, as a human, they, they state the birth and death differently for every film. Yeah, it's it's a thematic trilogy, more yeah. so than a, you know, like an actual trilogy. But this uh, this film actually does like I have read Carmilla. It it does stick to that story fairly closely. There's a lot of you know it draws a lot from it. Pitt is less predatory than she is, kind of like an emotionally fragile, lonely person who just has this vampiric nature right and madeline smith is i think kind of the epitome of the young innocent doe-eyed beautiful girl like her eyes are i swear they're as big as saucers like she's (laughs) she she, she's almost literally got the bambi eyes in this movie Mm. um, and i and i do want to state like the attraction goes both ways i mean you can tell this is not just a sort of one-sided you know predatory relationship um it's really just the sort of like when uh madeline smith and emma is uh you know like oh i'm gonna meet a man and we're gonna kind of go off and then you know Ingrid Pitt's kind of like, oh, a man, like a man can give you what I give you, you know, (laughs) like this is a, again, it is not masking this in any sense, you know, there is, there are no levels of deception in terms of, no, this film isn't actually about a lesbian, no, no, this film is about a lesbian movie, you know, at least one lesbian. I think the original story kind of is too it's just they had to hide it a bit more in the text yeah the it's time. more i have i have read the book it was a few years ago so i don't remember a lot of the details but yeah no the uh, the text of the original novel is also very overt in terms of what it's doing with that um when i read the novel i was i didn't realize it had been written before dracula and then mm-hmm. when you kind of get back to the go bram stoker bram stoker just ripped off like half of his he's kind of he's kind of a, he's kind of a hack <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> carmilla's definitely the better version of the story um and the film and film works as well another thing i really enjoy is the uh, the element of the uh, the flowers later in the film they've got garlic um, flowers isn't it? they're garlic flowers right and they, they put them around there and it kind of keeps the uh, the vampires at bay and they've got like orders to the servants to like you know these cannot be removed etc and uh there's a lot of kind of deft maneuvering around that in terms of, oh, we actually can protect her from this kind of predator with these kind of, and I, and I really enjoyed that element of it. I thought it was kind of deftly handled in the, in the script. Yeah. I do like that. This is, this is essentially like Hammer's first try at trying to branch out from the Dracula films and do something different with vampires. I mean, the vampires here 
are definitely slightly different than the, the traditional ones in the Dracula series. Like here, they're overtly depicted as evil spirits that inhabit bodies more than anything else. Mm. Like they have the you have the opening uh, sort of prologue there where that was set years earlier, where this uh, this guy takes revenge on the Karnstein family by killing all of them, uh, and they're all vampiric at this point. And it shows the vampire raising out of the grave in like her death shroud or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and and more of a spiritual kind of take on everything. I like that they have to be either be uh, take the stake to the heart or they have to be decapitated, which plays into all these films fairly well, where the films are getting more graphic at this point. Like, I, I think we mentioned uh, in our Captain Kronos uh, Vampire Hunter, which comes after this, how it's slightly connected to the Karnstein trilogy, where a lot of those ideas sort of come to almost like a culmination in Captain Kronos, you know? Right. Well, and it has this sort of equally kind of lighthearted, or yeah, lighthearted, it's playful. I like I like Gary's word for that, you know? It has mm-hmm. an equally playful tone that, uh, I mean, all three of these films are, I mean, they, they it often gets described as camp, but I don't, I'm not going to say it's not that, but it, it doesn't feel, it feels less sort of overtly we're making this so that you're going to approach it with the sort of ironic distance and more just let's kind of do the goofy fun version of this, you know? Um, yeah. Certainly, uh, certainly this film, The Vampire Lovers, uh, more so than the other two, I think just has this like, kind of really overt like sense of fun and in terms of you know like we're, we're not you know we've literally got lesbians have already gone to bed you know this is not a serious you know taste the blood of dracula you know let's look at the the depths of depravity kind of horror film vibe here you know it's it's yeah, and uh, captain chronos is just that to a to an extreme you know where yeah <laughs> let's do swashbuckling instead you know yeah there's one thing i'm disappointed about the film is it's i'm not really disappointed all that much but the cold open Really mm-hmm. sets you up for something awesome, because uh, that's one of the best decapitations I've seen in any movie. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it looks great. It doesn't cut away. It's just there. You get some, but you don't get a whole lot more of that. But then, then the boobs come. You feel so much better. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just there. The boobs are nice, fluffy pillows for your expectations to land on as they fall down from the from the opening of the film, basically. I mean, because you're Ingrid Pitt's boobs uh, single handedly. You know, they get they didn't get to see him, but can't be distracted how boring the house of your blood was. Her boobs were there though, so it's fine, you know. <laughs> uh, well, on this one, you get not just boobs, but you do get a nice lingering ass shot. Yes, in the tub. So uh, you know, if you, if you, you get a full frontal silhouette, another really great sexy silhouette that's probably up there on our list now. We've got we've got her silhouette, and we have another uh, silhouette in Twins of Evil. So you know, uh, we're, we're collecting silhouettes now. That's our. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it's, it's, we're collecting, you know, dead movie girlfriends and silhouettes. That's what yeah, this podcast is. Yeah, I, I like how um, the the sort of shot where you first see uh, Ingrid Pitt naked. She's in that tub, you know, the the sort, of the sort of tub you can sit in, and how that's so iconic that they basically uh, copied it for the Wicker Man years later. It's like <laughs> it's like let's put her in that tub again. <laughs> Well, once you have the brilliant idea of Ingrid Pitt in the tub, mm-hmm. you know, just that's just that's just money in the bank, man. Just come back. Just there's no need. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> yeah, but there's there's less singing in this movie, so it makes it all that much better. Yeah, <laughs> there is a lot of singing in The Wicker Man. Yeah, I do. I think honestly, my biggest problem with this film is that there's like a couple things. Like it seems like there's some plot points that were just kind of dropped 
and never explained. And I think the biggest glaring one is that man in black slash chauffeur for the Karnsteins or whatever the hell he's supposed to be, who's always, I, I guess he's like Carmilla's handler or something like that, because he's always sort of watching over her as they keep dropping her from family to family to basically just wipe them out. And he, there's never like any conclusion with him. He just sort of disappears by the end of the film. You know, yeah, he's just he's just kind of like this this menacing figure that never really does anything. Yeah, yeah. Every, every vamp needs a ghoul man to, to look after him, like you said. You know? Yeah, I th- I, th- I think that's what it's supposed to be. Although I think also maybe the next film we talk about kind of retcons that a little bit too, uh, or actually lust for a vampire retcons it a bit too. I suspect, but here they just kind of drop it. And it's almost like they maybe intended the sort of prologue here, the cold opening, the tone of that. Maybe they had a different film in mind at first, and then they decided, oh, no, we got to rewrite this and, and try this more uh, lighthearted, sexy stuff. Maybe maybe once they cast uh, Battle and Smith and they kind of get her and Ingrid Pitt in a room together and, you know, like they, they start kind of like increasing the boobs. Because there is like, I mean, I kind of say the film is fun, but it's fun in that kind of way that when those two actors are together and they're kind of doing the like fluffy pillow talk stuff, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a fun little, little thing. And, you know, you get some, some of the action stuff a little bit later, but I mean, there's also, I mean, that opening sequence, I mean, you're right, Gary, that opening sequence really sets you up for a very different level of film. And then I think kind of towards the last like 15, 20 minutes, it does kind of get into a little bit more of the generic. I don't want to say generic is a bad way, but it, it kind of like, Hits hits the beats of, and now we're chasing down the vampire stuff. Where you know, I kind of my my interest flags a little bit more, and so it may very well be that they they were they kind of originally had a, a little bit more traditional kind of vampire flick in mind, and then you know said, well, let's put some sex in this because why not? And yeah, you know, so it does kind of feel like maybe there are kind of two films fighting with each other to you know for for supremacy a little bit here, almost as if there's a vampiric lesbian at the center of the film that is invading it from the outside and sullying what would otherwise be just a uh, very straightforward and very um, wholesome, really, vision of uh, vampire car. I think if they had sort of ditched the lesbian uh, angle to this, it probably would have came off a bit more stale. It might have came off a bit more like Countess Dracula, which I still think is a good film, but, you know, it, it wouldn't have had that, extra oomph to it that makes it kind of like a an actual classic that people remember you know right right yeah or lust for a vampire you know like if Mm -hmm. you take all the like kind of clever cute original stuff out of this film you know and then you know you just get lust for vampire so the the reason you see the more sort of graphic violence and the boobs and stuff too as well is because this is a co-production with aip Mm. and at this point the censorship sort of rules had softened quite a bit so Hammer's like, we got to take advantage of this. And AIP was like, yeah, and we can sell this over in the U.S. So um, all three of these films actually benefited from that. When I went to look at, like, you know, alternate versions and so forth, the cuts are really small. For the most part, the the cuts here are just, oh, uh, she kisses down her chest but doesn't quite get to the nipple. They cut away, you know, like that kind of thing, you know. So they're definitely getting a lot more risque here. Do either of you guys have any sort of final thoughts on this one? Or? I think a common theme that I've seen in all these movies is, I don't even know if this is true or not, but and it really works because Madeline Smith eyes are so fucking monstrous that they're huge. 
that the, the point of the, the vampire glamoring the victim because she just looks at her like you're that special kind of stupid aren't you little girl and she she's and I, I think her <laughs> hair being so flat has something to do with that I it like adds something to it like you know you, you, you can't pronounce eyebrow in German oh you sweet little thing oh well, <laughs> <exactly>. tomorrow <laughs> um yeah her her eyes are like yeah there, there's the mesmerism angle that's in all of these films. So essentially, Madeline Smith, she's got like the biggest satellite dishes in her stuck in her head to to take in the vampiric <laughs> waves or whatever you know the radio signals. Yeah, so I like that. I, I will say, as long as we're on the Madeline Smith uh, topic, she did quite a few, uh, or at least a handful of sex comedies in the late sixties mm-hmm. and early seventies. And I'm not saying I went on Rare List and downloaded every one I could find. <laughs> I'm not not saying I went on Rare List and downloaded every one I could find. Well, I, I I applaud you for you know not doing that very thing, uh, <laughs> so that we won't do episodes on those films eventually in the future. And also, I, I think you'll find that if you look at the cast list here, almost every female member of each cast in these films have done like either handful or plethora of those sort of films as well. Yeah, so. I certainly didn't go through the cast list and uh, start searching them and download all the other films. Oh, okay. I, I, I definitely didn't do that. I didn't get get, the opportunity for that this week at all. You should get on that. Yeah, yeah. I well, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that people like pirate these things or, you know, in any way, you know, not pay for their uh, their media. But you know, just 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 recommending things that people not do. Yeah. Don't go to Rare Lust. It's a terrible site. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, even the thing like where you know, she she did bite her of our breast, but after it happened, she's like no, it was just this brooch, and then people bought that shit too. The, the, the brooch is so sharp that it pierced her perfectly that way. Yeah, you know? it it helps that all the uh, males in the household are dumb as shit, yeah. and and that she quickly also seduces the uh, the sort of uh, tutor that they have in house or whatever. Oh, yeah, who, uh, who is the more knowing lesbian? Like she's like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get it on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Kato Mara. Is that the Countess, or is that uh, Kato Mara? Kato Mara. Yeah, no. yeah. Kato Mara is. Sorry, I watched this one like several days ago, so it's not mm-hmm. as fresh in my mind as the other two. But yeah, no. Kato Mara was is. Um, I mean, she's good in the Ronnie. Uh, by the way, she is not the only uh, Doctor Who cast member we are going to run across oh, tonight. <laughs> but uh, no, it was great to see her in something that wasn't uh, in the uh, like two serials of classic Who that she was in. And she's really good in this. I think it's uh, it's it's kind of a shame that she's in this with. I mean, Ingrid Pitt was in two Doctor Who episodes as well, so you know, yeah. it is kind of uh, <laughs> ironic for me to uh, that that I really wish I had more to say about her, but like she is kind of outshone by the uh, the kind of the uh, Ingrid Pitt and uh, Madeline Smith, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like you know when you got a cast of beautiful women, it's oh you're you're, you're taking you're taking third, but I mean. It's still a and, fine looking. And I have I have never really been sold on Ingrid Pitt as a performer. Like I mean, I've kind of like yeah, yeah, she has her obvious charms, but I've never I've never quite kind of been on board with Ingrid Pitt as like someone that I really cared about, like sort of as a performer. Yeah. This film, I think, really kind of sells me on. Oh, she was you know she she's she's actually got a performance here, and she's really kind of doing stuff that she's compelling in a way that I hadn't seen her be before. So, um, throw that on there as well. Yeah, and uh, one last thing I'll mention before we get into uh, trivia and 
and st- statistics here for this. This has to be a thinly veiled little sort of like oral sex res- reference. In the actual story of Carmilla, she, instead of manifesting as a giant giant wolf like Dracula can do, she manifests as a cat. And, and so Maggie Smith has dreams of being assaulted in her dreams by this cat. And she talks about this giant cat smothering her face she feels the hair in her mouth. Yeah, this is yeah. this is this is part of that. Like, let's talk about subtlety in cinema and how this film has none of it, and is all the better for it. That's yeah. that's uh, part of that. You know, when the subtext might as well be text in another film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to a little bit of uh, info here. Uh, the budget was one hundred sixty-five thousand two hundred twenty-seven uh, pounds. Don't have box office, but. It did very well, uh, apparently. Very, very well, both overseas and in, uh, in Britain, so uh, that, hence the sequels. Christopher Lee was offered the role of the Man in Black, but turned it down because he was turning down anything Dracula-related at this point. <laughs> he should have uh, played the Ingrid Pitt role. I think it would have made it. would have. No, he should have played the Madeline Smith role. I think he had the chops for it. <laughs> I think it would be really astonishing to see Ingrid Pitt, you know, longing, looking longingly into Christopher Lee's eyes, but looking up at Christopher Lee. Or just to edit him in, like his, his looking the way he did in Deathline, you know, um, mm-hmm. edit that character in to this that we we get a sense of you know what that what that might have looked like on screen. The director uh, claimed that after reading the novel twice, he didn't get a sense of lesbianism content. <laughs> I call bullshit on that. Unless, <laughs> unless, unless he... was was that an interview he did from the time, or was that a more recent interview? I, the... I, I'm assuming this was probably from a DVD commentary. So if this is years later, then. If yeah, that's I mean, the case, then we'll, we'll... I am reminded. I was reminded watching this film of Vampiros Lesbos several times, not just because this is, if anything, even more overt than the film <laughs> literally called Lesbian Vampires about mm-hmm. you know, lesbianism and vampirism, but also uh, <laughs> of the scene where the uh, lovely blonde is possessed by uh, Soledad Miranda and the uh, you know stuffy old man stands up and goes, "I don't understand what this very orgasmic looking dance." rhythm that she's doing means and uh all the dialogue is like she's been inside me and now i can't i can't i can't bear not have her inside me anymore um (laughs) that's kind of what i imagine you would have to be that's the level of clueless in order to read carmilla and not go there are fucking lesbians in this yeah, Ingrid Pitt, who I guess she had an invested interest in like classical sort of vampire literature. Like we, we were talking about in uh, Countess Dracula, how she, she didn't like the fact that the film didn't stick as close to the uh, Countess Bathory stuff uh, in historical context. She claimed she didn't play the role as a lesbian, but an asexual, which I don't know. <laughs> Maybe she doesn't know what the definition of asexual is, but... <laughs> I mean, I get it. I get it from her perspective as a performer, mm-hmm. because what she's doing in that moment then is to say, "I'm not playing this sexually. I'm playing this as someone who is, you know, like entranced by her personality or her beauty or her, you know, whatever. Like, like I have a love for her or whatever." And I get that, like, you can certainly see in Ingrid Pitt's performance that it's not necessarily a, you know, overtly sexual, you know. She's not literally like lusting for her in like in the face, you know. I can sort of see how that, how if that was her process of getting there, but it's overtly, you know, yeah. like a lesbian movie. You know? 
Yeah, I know. It's, it's kind of kind of kind of funny, but uh, yeah. Unless there's anything else to say about this one from uh, you guys, we can uh, take a quick break for uh, some music, and uh, we'll come back with Twins of Evil. Twins of Evil from 1971. Oh, God, have mercy on this poor, unfortunate creature. In old Gothic Europe, they had two burning passions, witch hunting and devil worship. Practice the black arts. Worship the devil. They're all slaves to Count Konstein, and he is their evil master. You know what I want more than anything else? To meet Count Karnstein. <gasps> they look alike. They dress alike. Two identical beauties. But one of them has the very devil in her. For you, all pleasures should be supreme. These are the men they call the Brotherhood. Seek out the devil worshippers! And this is the sister who is about to enter the Devilhood. Look, what do you see? <gasps> we are the undead. Immortal. The devil has sent me twins of evil. Maria now, unsuspected, good and kind. Think of the havoc you can cause. I thought it was your sister that I loved, but now 
Directed by John Ho, or Hugh, Hogue, Hogue? I assume Hogue. How? Not Ho, not Ho. How, who, Hogue, what? I don't know. Um, John Ho, it'd be okay. Yeah, John Ho. Uh, I, he also did, uh, notably, The Legend of Hell House, which is an excellent haunted house film. Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, he directed that. That's a and, good and That's he, phenomenal. And he also uh, went on to direct the uh, two uh, Witch Mountain films uh, for Disney. Oh, I Escape believe. from Witch Mountain and, and uh, Return to Witch Mountain. Those are good. Return as a kid, I watch those too. Still today. Yeah, written by Tudor Gates and of course based on Sheridan Le Fanu's uh, story, starring Peter Cushing as Gustav Wheel, Catherine Byron as Katie Wheel. Mary Collinson as Maria Gellhorn, Madeline Collinson as Frida Gellhorn, David Warbeck as Anton Heffer, or Hoffer, I mean, Damien Thomas as Count Karnstein, Katia Welf as Countess Mercala, and Roy Stewart as Jockham. And uh, talking about Doctor Who, uh, guys, Roy Stewart was in one of the Doctor Who serials, at least one he of them. He was in two. He was in two. Yeah. He's most famous as the incredibly racist, mute, uh, strong man, Toberman in Tomb of the Cyberman, uh, Tomb of the Cyberman, which does not carry over at all into... Uh, no, it's not a stretch here, is it? No, it's, it's in no way connected to how he's used in this film. Thankfully here he has a, a subtle and nuanced characterization with uh, many, many layers, and uh, actually, no, he's completely the mute strong man who gets stabbed at the end and kills a couple of people, though, and is definitely, if we were doing the badasses, boobs, and body counts thing, he would definitely be the, the badass of the film. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and what column does that, the, the, where does that hilarious eye burn go? Because that's fucking funny as hell. When he gets <laughs> the guy in the eye with the torch. <laughs> so synopsis for this from someone called Jeremy Perkins says, In 19th century Middle Europe, orphan teenage twins Maria and Frida go to live with their uncle Gustav Wheel, who heads the Brotherhood, a vigilante group trying to stamp out vampirism. No, that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to stamp out witches. But their methods are random and misplaced and only result in a terrorized populace. The real threat lies with Count Karnstein, and although the twins seem outwardly to be identical, Frida finds herself much more drawn than her sister to the Count's castle, dominating the skyline. So, you know, you get some points there, Jeremy, but you're wrong about the Brotherhood. And that's actually kind of a crucial plot point, that the Brotherhood are witch hunters who are clueless about vampirism. So, uh... But we'll get into that. Again, I'll throw it to you, Gary. What are your sort of thoughts on this one? I really dug it. I mean, it, it starts out right away. It gives you what the Brotherhood's intentions are. It's not to, to find, you know, vampires. They have no idea where there are vampires. And, yeah, that, that guy should be slapped for, for writing synopsis like that. And uh, it doesn't work like that. But uh, it, it starts out with, you know, classic, let's burn the witch, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe she couldn't find a husband like the other one they wanted to burn and, you know. She, she's wanting some good loving, apparently, and not find a husband. I, I like the whole thing, the whole good twin, bad twin thing, because, yeah, the, the one's obviously 
become under the influence of the vampirism of the of the, of the, the man of the castle and the, the whole idea of them being twins them making the switch that that that's always fun although you could always tell that if you if you if you're watching from the air or watching like yeah that bitch is up to something you can tell right away again <laughs> it's done very playfully I, I like that yeah gr- great great breasts like I said it's like in the last movie it's just, mm-hmm. just there for you to see whether they're exposed or just propped up you know that's good stuff to watch. It's unlike the last movie. This one's a lot more fluid in what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. As far as you know, you you have your bad guy and then and the the man of the castle who, who's influencing and killing all these people now. And um, I, I love the fact that he he's into Satanism, but he kind of he kind of fell into it in, in real <laughs> for for reals. And it's like yeah, now he doesn't know quite what to do with that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And in the end, of course, the whole big battle thing, which it works this movie not so much in that last movie throwing tridents and cutting people's heads off and i mentioned the black man servant burning that guy's eye that was pretty hilarious yeah it's just a great time and I, I never seen any of these films before this I'll, I'll be going back to this one again for sure nice daniel i said uh, the vampire lovers is my favorite of the three uh, this one is the best of the three mm-hmm. uh, and i do differentiate i will re-watch the vampire lovers before i re-watch twins of evil but Twins of Evil definitely has a it's it's a higher bar. It's really reaching for more. Whereas Vampire Lovers is kind of a gen, again I hate to say generic. It makes it sound bad, but kind of like you know by the numbers Hammer Horror that's got this kind of great little lesbian stuff in the middle of it. Um, Twins of Evil has the least lesbianism of the three, which makes mm-hmm. it worst. Um, I'm just, you know. No, not at all. Um, but I think it's really got this kind of interesting thing where uh, I almost wish there was no actual supernatural stuff in this film. Mm-hmm. I almost wish it was just a story of this basically, I mean, literally witch hunters, you know, these these kind of like patriarchal conservative shitheads literally burning women at stakes because they're having sex in ways that they don't like. And then on the other side, there's this guy who believes that he is communing with the devil and is taking like perfectly what what should be perfectly natural kind of like oh i just want to have you know like unrestricted sex with consenting partners and has like because of the patriarchal society he has decided i have to now become a devil worshiper but i wish there was no actual like supernatural element to it because then you would you could you could really kind of explore some of the uh dynamics of like how these kind of characters work um which i thought that was kind of the direction the film was going for a while i really thought kind of because you get the the witch burners kind of come around that you see kind of see the beginning of it peter cushing phenomenal performance because at first i hated this guy like i'm literally just like i absolutely hate peter cushing with a burning burning fucking passion in the first like half hour of this film you're supposed um, to hate him, really. Well, yeah, I'm supposed to. I mean, like, like it's it, the film is definitely doing what it's supposed to do. And then when he like he's harassing this guy here, and all he's doing is he's bending a beautiful girl, and it's like, well, come on, man. I mean, yes, the guy's a little bit of a dick, where he's like, yeah, I take her, you'll have some fun, and then you know, it's like, yeah, no, no, dude, this is not this is not how you treat this is not how you treat a lady who has consented to come into your bedroom. And then like the film has to sort of turn him into. Well, no, but he actually is a devil worshiper, and he actually is like you know communing with Satan, and then he actually is a vampire. Which I don't know. For me, it kind of became you were kind of going somewhere a little bit more interesting, and now you're going somewhere a little bit less interesting, just because you know you kind of have to. 
do the genre tropes, but it's still very, very good. I think it still it still manages to do it in an interesting way and to kind of give us um, some interesting characterization along the way. I really love the performances from the two twins. These are mm-hmm. the Collinson twins. They were Playboy Playmates, the very first twin playmates right. um and i think october 1970 something like that yep. um uh, not that i looked it up or anything <laughs> but uh, some i really love the way they're kind of portrayed i mean it is it is one of those things where you kind of see these th- these films all three of them and, and i guess uh, hammer during this period was really leaning into the yeah we're not even going to pretend that these are not basically supermodels that we're putting in like vaguely period costume with plunging necklines and saying hey look you know they're modern women in in you know 19th century or whatever they definitely kind of are portrayed as is fairly kind of modern girls at least modern to 1971 or whatever and i really like that i guess i guess one thing that i would say is i don't quite understand why like the difference between maria and frida like why one turns evil and one doesn't it just kind of treated as sort of a little bit of a you know a little bit just kind of a plot point it just kind of becomes a thing in a lot of ways you don't even really need twins for this film to work i mean it kind of works as the kind of conception of the film but i mean you could have like one girl who's just kind of caught between loyalties between the two or something like that you know you could have done something a little bit and you know um but it definitely works i really like the performances there i really liked you know once you kind of get into the I, i really love the probably my favorite scene of the film is actually when you first kind of see our uh, Satan worshiper there, you know, uh, kind of uh, sitting there and uh, watching the ritual happen. And he's like, oh, this Mm -hmm. is fucking bullshit, man. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I have vanquished Satan in this moment. And uh, you guys, you guys are all a bunch of bullshit artists. And, you know, because he's like, no, I know the real satanic rituals and you guys don't know what the fuck you're doing here. Um, And it's a, it's a really fun little moment. um, And it really kind of takes the piss out of the whole like kind of concept of doing it and kind of sells his evil really right in that moment. It really kind of sells it as like, no, I'm the real kind of big bad here. And then at the end, uh, you know, we like Peter Cushing again, because despite the fact that he's just murdered innocent women for having uh, what appears to be very fun sex, he, he sees the light and uh, dies with an axe in his back. So, you know. He gets what he deserves. I, I don't end up liking him by the end of the film. I'm still like, fuck you. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I He's definitely, you know, he, he's trying to redeem himself and he's kind of realized a little bit of the error of his ways. And I think uh, Cushing kind of uh, nuances the performance slightly so that like once you do kind of see, oh yeah, you're not, you're not actually... Yeah, he he is starting to kind of understand that oh he actually has done these terrible things to these women who didn't deserve it and maybe you know with time he would come to repent from that so I, I i do kind of buy him as a little bit more of a hero kind of a heroic figure you know at least contextually towards the end but you're right like these two these two men are in many ways equally evil you know mm. i mean you, yeah. you, you could tell why the one went to the, to the throes of evil because they, they describe Uncle gustav as a man who who beats them because they're probably sinful thinking impure thoughts or something you know and uh I can imagine one has balls and one still is very afraid of her surroundings. So that's why she uh, she fleed to the castle. <laughs> right. The one that turns to the vampire is essentially the, the trope of, you know, the bad girl that ends up, you know, either dying in a slasher film or, you know, turning to the dark side kind of thing. And I like this a lot. This is my favorite of the three films. I think it's the most well-produced, best-looking film. Like, the sets in this, I think, are fucking amazing. Like, everything looks so good. Take away the fact, and all, this, all the films in this series have this problem. Really bad day for night shit. Like, yes. <laughs> really, really bad. But... Put that aside, 
this is the best looking film of the entire thing. Like you can tell they put some money into this one. I do like, even though it is, it is a very kind of in a way a cheap gimmick, the idea of, you know, using the twins, using one is good. One is evil. It's, it's very well done. I think Daniel's right. Both of the performances are really good. You, you buy each one of them. Uh, you know, this this one's the rebel who wants to hang out with the Satanists, and this is the pure innocent one who wants to do good and and, and be a nice girl. He wants to sit uh, and sing hymns with the pretty boy. You know, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe her heart wasn't quite as pure either, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, whatever. She's just like, I just kind of like the, I kind of like the the bareface type. Kind of don't like the bad boy. I don't, I'm not into goth. That's really the thing. One's a goth, and one's more emo. Yeah. And so, you know, by some people, it's kind of considered a prequel to the other two films in in a way, um, because here you have like Karnsteins who aren't vampires, basically. So, and the idea that this entire Karnstein family they sort of dip into Satanism, like they're all, I guess, inherently evil to some degree. And in order to become a vampire, you have to have sex with your ancestor, <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> because uh, Carmilla in this is just like a brief character that's resurrected to basically turn Baron Karnstein into a vampire. Yeah. And so he's basically having sex with his like great, great, great grandmother. <laughs> so what are you saying? That the Baron didn't know shit. He just kind of fell into vampirism, see? Yeah, it's kind of like... <laughs> There's a connection here to uh, Taste of Blood of Dracula in a way where you just have these bored, rich motherfuckers who are looking for thrills. And that's kind of what Baron Karnstein's doing. He's just looking for thrills. And he he finally drops right into the actual Satanism kind of thing, just like the uh, three guys in Taste of Blood of Dracula does when they uh, meet up with one of Dracula's uh, servants, you know. Um, It's, It's like, wow, this body's buried just underneath this table. Who would have thunk it, you know? I got to question how, why a Karnstein uh, castle would have a, you know, like a uh, <laughs> a chapel in it. <laughs> that, that never made sense to me in any of these films, but okay, whatever. But yeah, I, I love this one. I love... It's just, it's just distraction. It's just a, it's just a you know, it's yeah. a facade, you know? But I, I, I love I love Cushing's performance here. Like, it's rare that you get to see him play a bad guy, and he does it with a lot of zeal. Like, this is this is akin to Vincent Price uh, in uh, Witchfinder General, kind of same idea, where it's just like, wow, fuck this guy. I, I want him to die. I just I hated every move this guy made. And, like, yeah, I don't see any redemption for him personally, because this guy was, like, flat out basically threatening everybody he encountered. The one sort of, you know, the the uh, male hero in this, I guess, he threatens his sister at one point. He's like, you know, you either fuck off or uh, maybe your sister will come up on charges, basically, you know, and we'll put her to the stake, you know. And then she ends up dying anyway later on. But And I love that Cushing is this arrogant asshole who thinks he knows, you know, the word of God and how to fight evil and all this shit. But it's actually our, you know, our young schoolmaster hero or whatever who has been reading up on this shit. He has all the books on, like, witchcraft and demons and stuff. He's like, no, these are fucking vampires. We have to fight them this way. And it turns out that he's right. You know, he he's it's, actually it's the one. Actually, it's actually a Captain Kronos origin story. Kind of <laughs> is, yeah. yeah. I, I like this one a lot. Uh, again, it's got plenty of uh, nudity in it. It's it, it's sexy. It's It's got some nice-looking women in it. Although um, only one of the only one of the twins actually uh, goes topless in this, right? You know, so funny, funny thing. Kind of a weird, kind of a weird like detail. Like you'd think, like we hired, yeah, 
I'm again, I'm not saying like they both have to. I'm just saying, you know, it's you hired you hired the Playboy playmates to play twins in a movie, and then you know, you don't even they don't even both go topless, you know. So it's it's funny because there was some sort of I don't know if it was promotional shots for this or if it was just like a sort of a photo shoot done for fun around the same time. There's actually like sort of cheesecake kind of photos of them where they're both nude. With vampire fangs and stuff, you like if you look up pictures of them, you'll you'll see like the, the sort of that sort of stuff that obviously was in some relation to this film, but it was just done, you know, aside. Probably promotional stuff that mm-hmm. you know, like to maybe to sell to nudie mags. I don't know. Like I think so because uh, I mean they were in a lot of that stuff, and of course they also did a couple like sex comedies and sort yeah, of sexy some, movies. The, some of the, the they're apparently sort of background actors in some of the uh, same ones that came up, but you know some of the same titles kind of came up in my search. And again, I definitely do not have those available to me right now to right. watch later on. You know. Yeah, no, that we would never do that. <laughs> definitely shouldn't share those with us either. De- definitely shouldn't do that. No, you know? no, 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 no. no. <laughs> we would never do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, like I, like I said again, best sets of the trilogy, best effects, best acting. I think uh, over overall, I get a kick out of the jailhouse guy near the end of the film. There, who's holding one of the twins in the jail. He just has the most breathtaking comb over I've ever seen on film. Like yes. it's just. It's so, it's just like the most terrible and most most breathtaking kind of comb over I've ever seen on a character. That's just wow. Okay, dude, that's a choice. That's that's good. We should just talk about Jockham for a second, uh, the black manservant who uses uh, charades to warn his master of the coming mob. Yes, <laughs> because that that's the thing that that's the thing that mute people do. Um, I, I looked it up while we were talking. Uh, he also plays a vaguely mute strongman tough guy in the in terms of the terror of the autons which is the right. other story he's in in doctor who so yeah this is uh this is a trope <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the guy we need we need a big guy to be tough and menacing and black and you know to to die and that's 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 what he is it is it is striking though because you mean, don't expect to see that in like this film in this period I, right I, I think i think the thing for me is it's it's sort of because i do really enjoy this film but it is that element just sort of a just seeing a black face i mean which i think is like oh wow there there's like a black man in this film but then also the the role that he's given is you know complete bullshit and just complete racist nonsense and uh it does sort of make it to where it's harder to recommend the film just because it does have this element that like there's no reason for this there is absolutely no reason for this film. you know well, it's like you said it's the 19th century or something so you kind of got to take it in context of the time it was supposed to be made in and yeah there's kind of a sense of respect there too almost like go get him but at the same time you know he might be entranced by it who the fuck knows i don't even know it's not really explained well, why he's it, mute. i mean the whole thing is like because it's not explained if they had explained like oh this was you know some guy some doctor or something who has you know been entranced and like the guy cut his tongue out karnstein cut his tongue out or something because uh he was trying to prevent him from talking you know give him some kind of backstory and you can justify whatever you want but you know, it just it becomes this sort of lazy trope that I think the film leans into, and it just like it's just uncomfortable. It's just it's just the sort of thing to where it's like, oh man, really? I really like this movie, and you had to do like that bullshit. You know, like, well, if you if you look at the long line of dumb white and dumb Asian henchmen as well, I mean, I just watched um the Perfect Weapon, 
And uh, Professor Toru Tanaka made that a career of mm-hmm. being the silent henchman, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and although, I mean, it could easily just been um, like from the Dracula series where, and, you know, the second Doctor played it, played the character at least once in that series, uh, Clove, which was the manservant for Dracula. Basically the same kind of deal, except he was like overtly evil as well and scheming and shit, but... You know, yeah, it, it's, it was a weird choice. It's a weird choice. <laughs> it's like, okay. I mean, I'm sure it seemed progressive at the time. I'm going to give them, I mean, you can give them the benefit of the doubt. It seemed yeah. progressive at the time. This is, like, again, I said, this is my favorite of the trilogy. Uh, I liked it a lot. If any of you guys have any sort of final thoughts on this one, or we can get into the sort of. You have another great uh, beheading in this. Mm hmm. Uh, yes. Really. Kind of a surprising moment where you know, she kind of just comes around the corner and then suddenly whack, and it's done. Yeah, um, it's, it's a nice little shock moment. I kind of, I kind of feel like uh, maybe Hammer had just sort of developed the uh, the beheading technology uh, kind of late in their run, and said, "Oh, we're going to use this twice. Let's do it." Yeah. You know? that was a pretty tasty weapon too. That it's almost like a cleaver, but it's like double sided. Yeah, it's like a mach- big like machete almost kind of yeah. thing. You know, yeah. or- I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at some of the weapons where they're crafting weapons in that moment and you know it's literally like you know, you can't burn them to death, which, you know, this is going to come back in Lust for a Vampire. This is like, you know, <laughs> stupid fucking villagers burning people who can't be burned. But And so it's just like, yeah, just take all your farm implements and just, you know, saw them into, you know, really sharp edges because we just need pikes and stuff. And um, I, I was kind of, you're right, that axe, I really wish we got a nice like shot of that axe in a modern film, I think we would get a at least a little bit of a thing. But it almost felt like a video game implement. Like you know, Peter Cushing has ar- has armed himself with special two sided axe. You know, like it felt like it felt like something that you'd watch uh, in like a uh, first person shooter kind of thing, or, or like a Skyrim kind of. Yeah, I, I was actually a little disappointed. I was expecting like a, a really nice tool up scene for like the entire the whole mob. You, you get like two minute montage of them sharpening their weapons and constructing weird weapons and shit. But now nah, it's just three seconds. You, just, you just basically just see Cushing's weapon and then they move on. I can see a remake really kind of going there with it. Like really like giving us like, we're going to look at all the, all the different weapons they make. And then, you know, like we get a nice shot of them all running to the castle or whatever. But Yeah. And then, then it fails, fails them for the most part because the big black manservant comes in and whoops their asses for like 30 <laughs> seconds before they overpower them. Imagine if Jason Voorhees had that double-sided machete. He'd be uh, oh, killing, yeah. killing, killing, killing. <laughs> flip it over, and, you know, this side's kind of dull. I need more killing in a kind of nice... <laughs> I think uh, I think that weapon should be a um, challenge on Forged in Fire. I'm not yes. sure if that, but... <laughs> that, that blade will slice, man, for sure. <laughs> yeah. This blade will kill. Yes. <laughs> Uh, budget for this was two hundred and five thousand sixty seven pounds. They they went a little bit over on this one compared to the first film. I like to I think, think their budget, like their planned budget, was two hundred and five thousand, and they went sixty seven <laughs> pounds over. Yeah, and there's some producer like really gave the director shit for it. Like that's what I that you know when I see numbers that precise, I'm like that's not the real budget. Like let's not. You know. We need we need sixty seven pounds for one extra lacy nighty to put on one of the Colson twins. That's what we need. <laughs> That's why she's topless in that one scene because they were supposed to be two hundred five thousand one hundred dollars. Yeah, but they didn't have the extra thirty three dollars. 
<laughs> to buy her an extra 90 so she had to be like topless in that scene that's yeah we explained it there it goes yeah I'm, I'm so sorry dear but you have to be topless in the scene we don't have the money for any clothes Plus, it, was, it was particularly cold that night and those nipples are massive in these movies so there you go yeah so this film ingrid pitt was offered a cameo role but she, of course she she turned it down she she was going to get basically reprise her character from vampire lovers but uh she turned it down. Uh, she might have even been working for Amicus at this point because she was jumping back and forth between some companies and stuff. Like I, like we mentioned in Countess Dracula, she became like really high demand and she was like sort of pursuing different avenues of her career at this point. This is prior to her first appearance on Doctor Who as well. So Yeah. This film actually used the same sets as Vampire Circus from 1972, and I can kind of believe that. I have not seen Vampire Circus, which is one we I, should do at I, some point. All I did was click on the summary and went, yeah, we should cover that. That's like the really late period vampire film, and it sounds like it's pretty good. Uh, and I can see why they would reuse these sets because, like I said again, these are some pretty good sets. They put some money into this shit. DVD info, and actually, I forgot to throw the DVD info for the previous film as well, so I'll just do that really quick. Vampire Lovers, 2003 MGM Midnight Movie double feature DVD with Counters Dracula, which is the one I own, and 2013 Shout Factory released Blu-ray for that, and for this one, we have a 2012 DVD Blu-ray combo pack uh, that I own. Strangely enough, in 2014, they also released a single just DVD and uh, from Synapse, like it's kind of weird orders. Like usually you release the DVD first, then you do the DVD Blu-ray combo a couple years later, but they did it in reverse for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess we can uh, conclude Twins of Evil. I know you have to take off there, Gary. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, you, you work third shift like me. You know you know exactly what I'm talking about. So Right, right. Been but, there. Uh, Been there. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for uh, joining in. It's always good to talk to you. Tell everyone about your fine podcast, sir. Uh, Sin Beef Podcast um, is a show where we do multiple genres, much like your show. Uh, Lee's coming in a pinch on a couple of those shows. And I say, hey, Lee, you want to do a show? And he says, sure. And I say, okay. And I, uh, that, good. yeah, that and our commentary show, Two Jack Venom Commentaries, can both be found on legionpodcast.com. Sloppy Seconds Movie Sequel Podcast, a podcast that Lee also appeared on, uh, the Sabata episode that recently released, can be found on horophilia.com. And uh, please check out the Fleas and Flicks charity auction. It goes to a no-kill shelter uh, coming first week of December. I got tonnage for that. So if you um, have interest in that kind of stuff, it's a memorabilia auction. You can be anywhere in the world because the auction's online. So if you're willing to help me with the shipping, I'll ship it to Australia if you want me to. But yeah, don't be afraid. That's about it for me. And um, like we established, if you listen to our recent episode of Cinema Beef, there there will be a PayPal link as well where you can just donate to the Fleas and Flicks. You don't <coughs> actually have to bid on on anything if you're not interested in that. So uh, I'll I'll throw down the other requisite links uh, for Gary's stuff in the show notes and uh, check all that shit out. Highly recommended. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you very much, Gary. Uh, and, uh, nice to see you, Gary. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Daniel. Cheers. All right, cheers, cheers. Gary. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. Okay, and with Gary's departure, we'll take a really quick break for some more music, and then we'll be back for our final film.
Okay, Lust for a Vampire, 1971. If the very thought of vampires makes your flesh creep. We call them the undead, sir. They're vampires. If you think all vampires are ugly creatures of the night, then you're in for a shattering surprise. This fresh, warm blood into a body of thy making. Welcome to the most exclusive finishing school in Europe, where the quest for knowledge continues long into the night. You see, I have studied your magic. I know the black art, and I want only to know more and more. Here, the masters are quick to recognize an outstanding pupil. The portrait of Camilla Karnstein died 1710, 120 years ago. And do you know who the portrait was of, Mirkala? It was you. Welcome to the finishing school, where they really do finish you. I spent the whole of last night going through Giles' researches. And believe me, they are powerful evidence. Evidence? Of what? That you are a vampire. You say that. And tell me you love me. Prove to me that you're not. Love me. by Jimmy Sangster. I strangely did not do any research on anything else he directed. I should have done that. It was an oversight. <laughs> Written by Tudor Gates, and of course, again, based on Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu, starring Ute Stinsgard as Mercala. I'm not going to pronounce that last name. Fuck that shit. Or Carmilla. You know, you know who she is. Um, <laughs> the same character we've talked about in two other films. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Michael Johnson as Richard Lestrange. I love that name. Ralph Bates, uh, speaking of... Tasteable of Dracula. Tasteable of Dracula, yeah, as uh, Giles Barton. Barbara Jeffert as Countess... Again, last name, not pronouncing that. Susanna Lay as Janet Playfair. That's a quite a name, too. That's quite the name, too. I like that. Yeah, there's there are some good names in this film. I will give it that. I will give it mm-hmm. that. Helen Christie as Miss Simpson. Mike Raven. I love that name as well, but that's his real name as Count Cardstein and Harvey Hall as Inspector Heinrich. Yeah, I'm pretty sure our lead is Ute Stinsgard. Yeah, Ute Stinsgard. Or Ute Stinsgard, something like that. Something like that. I said, either way, she fits the mold of like sexy, like Danish chick yeah, to perfection. <laughs> She's Scandinavian and sexy and speaks English, and that's uh, that's all she has to do. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like our director, Jimmy Sangster, was one of the original writers for uh, Hammer. Oh, okay. In the late 50s. The name uh, sounded familiar, so they finally yeah, gave him like he a wrote, job. He wrote uh, The Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula. Okay. Seven and 58. He was just kind of one of those guys. He did like the quarter mass experiment. And, oh. And, yeah. So, I mean, sorry, I'm just looking at him on the uh, on Wikipedia there, you know. <laughs> TV screenwriting, including Cold Jack and Night Stalker, The Magician, oh. BJ and the Bear, uh, Ironside, McLeod, Six Million Dollar Man, and Wonder Woman. So, long and varied career. Yeah, to Very say the least. Very respectable kind of guy. So synopsis again from Jeremy Perkins from the last uh, movie. So let's see how you do this time, Jeremy. Um, (laughs) Did he fall asleep halfway through is kind of the question. Are you going to mention any boobs this time? In 1830, 40 years to the day since the last manifestation of their dreaded vampirism, the Karnstein heirs used the blood of an innocent to bring forth the evil that is the beautiful Mercala, or as she was in 1710, Carmilla. The nearby finishing school offers rich pickings, not only in the blood of nubile young ladies, but also with the headmaster, who is desperate to become Mercala's disciple, and the equally besotted and even more foolish author, Richard Lestrange. <laughs> you got it this time. I think you nailed it a little yeah, bit better. Yeah, no, I think that's... I think, I think in some ways, the more boring ones are easiest to write synopses for. I say this is someone who has sort of written... You know, I used to write for, for new listeners. I don't think we have any new listeners, but for new listeners, I used to write... I used to spend like an hour per movie writing synopses for these. It's it's an underrated skill. It actually is like a really challenging thing to like summarize a plot in a way that is clear but also entertaining and that is that doesn't kind of just give the film away, you know, that describes it without ruining it, but also kind of describes it well enough so you kind of know what's going on going in. So you're it's, kind it's, of you're, you're kind of writing a trailer, like you're kind of writing yeah, yeah. a really hot trailer kind of thing. And it, I'll, I'll I always you. always kind of approach it as like you're writing the end of the book, like a, like like right. the, the you know the the synopsis on the back of the book, you know, in a couple of paragraphs, you know, tell me what this thing is, but also kind of like tell me you know kind of how it ends because it's it would be easier to write them after we had talked about them so that i would know which elements i definitely had to include it's always the challenge you know but but, uh i'll give it to mr jeremy perkins this time you managed to do it this time i think you did a good job no no well done well done and jeremy perkins listens to this podcast (laughs) can you imagine if like random imdb contributors we're listening to this podcast and we had to like concern ourselves with caring about what we had to say about their work. You know, you know what the best thing would be. And I have a feeling that, you know, it seems like Jeremy Perkins must be fairly prolific in sort of writing some of these things. Maybe it might be sort of our wheelhouse that we'll encounter him again in, in future IMDb. Sure. <laughs> I think, I think really what we need to do is do a series of just films that he has written the synopsis for. And then That's, that might be something to look into, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're gonna can, ruin can you, this, Jeremy Perkins. Can this, can this podcast get more niche? Is really the question. <laughs> uh, but it, it would be, it would be funny though if like some some random IMDb guy was a fan of this and he was anticipating what we were going to review next, and then he would write a synopsis in hopes that we would we would pick up on it you know really really if there if there is a fan out there who is like who is listening and like cares that much please just send us an email 
Yes. Like, you can come on. Like, it's <laughs> fine, you know? Like, we're, we're friendly, I promise. Yeah. I mean, you know, we give the IMDb people shit if they fuck up, but, I mean, still, you know, it's 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 all fair. It's it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it really is, like, I, you know, I legitimately love the element of the internet where it's just, like, people sharing things they love. I mean, that's what this podcast is. It's mm-hmm. just sharing, like, this experience of us kind of sitting and talking about mostly okay to bad movies you know but i really love like the people who really will just sit and write synopses on imdb like it's such a it's such just a little subculture of people who just kind of get interested in doing it and then it's it's just free labor and it's socialism at work is what it is and it's (laughs) you know and and i deeply deeply love it so yeah Uh, (laughs) can you tell we're kind of trying to avoid talking about a little bit (laughs) a little bit uh but we're going to throw into it now. We're so going to go in. Yeah. So Daniel, what are your sort of thoughts on this? So I, I had to, I had to watch this one and a half times. Uh, the first time I watched it, I mean, I kind of got nothing out of it. It was mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of lost on who these people are, what the character, you know, I got about halfway through it. I got I know, maybe a little more than I was like 50 minutes in. and just kind of, I was tired and I'm, I'm just, I, I could stay up and do the extra 30 minutes or I could just go to bed. I rewatched it this afternoon. I understood it better kind of watching it, you know, on my laptop, kind of just kind of sitting there and actively paying attention to it. Um, some of the, some of the stuff that it was trying to do were, was a little more interesting at the same time. I watched it this afternoon and it's already faded from my memory. Right. <laughs> this is a film that it's got some good stuff in it. In particular, there's a, there's a bit, I kind of like the, the kind of the school teacher element where he kind of yeah. shows up and he's like, Oh, I'm going to be a teacher. And it's like, no, we don't want your kind here because you're like just some douchebag and who cares? We have another, we have another English teacher coming in and the other guy comes up and he's the foppish gentleman, shall we say? Yeah, foppish and, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. We can't, we can't quite tell if he's gay or just British. Um, that's kind of the <laughs> issue with that. Um, and I, neither one of those things should be an insult, but I think the film kind of, the film definitely leans a little bit on like this guy is, uh, you know, it does not treat this guy kindly. Um, so uh, apparently he's a really bad writer and our, our lead here, our Richard Lestrange, he uh, kind of does the, oh yeah, I'm really interested in your work. I need you to go do some research for me. And then that way he gets to go be the uh, the new English teacher at the at the all-girls finishing school. But before that happens, he kind of approaches the thing. He shows up and you think you get this big horror moment where like all these figures are advancing on him and like he's been told like, oh, the, the women will like devour you. And it turns out, oh no, they're just school children. They're just, I mean, they're not school children, but they're, they're co-eds. They're, they're, they're is, women at the finishing school. Yeah. Tell me, is is this not basically the Laura Lee's grasp in certain elements as far oh, as the yeah. comedy series? Oh yeah, no, definitely. I mean, all three of these films kind of lean a little bit into that. I mean, I guess maybe it's the AIP connection to where they're kind of sexing it up a little bit and they're kind of going. Well, uh, I don't think AIP was involved with the last two films. Well, this one was distributed by AIP, according was to it? Wikipedia. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Twins of Evil, no vampire lovers. Yeah, Twins of Evil was yes. uh, the 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 rank or Rand Corporation. Okay. Where, anyway, yeah. whatever. <laughs> We're not experts on this. We just talk about it on the internet. It's fine. No, but I mean, I was getting so such a like a big Laura Lee's grasp uh, kind of vibe here. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing with a lot of these kinds of films is they just kind of become gothic horror, and, like, there's nothing wrong with gothic horror, but especially, like, watching them kind of three in a row on a weekend or, you know, in in just a couple of days, the way we kind of do it for this podcast, you're just kind of watching the same thing over and over again, Mm -hmm. you know? The fun thing about, like, kind of doing it a little bit more in the, like, oh, we're going to have bouncy boobs and, like, pillow fights kind of thing is, oh, you're putting, like, this other element into it that, uh, you know, kind of justifies me paying attention to it a little bit more. (laughs) Let's remember, I mean, I've been kind of shitting on this a little bit. I don't think it's, you know, it kind of gets called one of the worst films ever made, apparently. Yeah, Um, I don't get that. But I I think that's because one of the actors in it described it that way. Ralph Bates, I believe, did. Yeah, Ralph Bates, because he he just didn't, but even then, he, he had nice things to say about the script, but just didn't like, I don't know. Like, it's definitely not that bad. I mean, we have done, we've done worse films for this in the last month or two we've done worse films than this. yeah i i suspect bates i don't know i i don't want to you know cast any sort of negative vibes towards him but i feel like maybe he was a bit bitter that he didn't become the like the big hammer star that they were yeah. sort of courting him to be because when he was in taste of blood of the dracula he was supposed to be the main villain in that film he was he was supposed to be the big bad guy before christopher lee got brought back into it mm-hmm. And then once that happened, he never really had any sort of super big roles in Hammer stuff again. Like he was just, you know, a, another Hammer player, basically. Yeah. So I mean, I, which you know, if he was if he was trying to kind of be a star and kind of just never kind of managed to always. I mean, how many actors can say that though? You know, and, right? And to be like a guy who was uh, who was an active player in Hammer and who kind of had his career in, in that, like. That's a perfectly respectable career, as far as I'm concerned. You know. Oh no, and and I, and I, I like his work. I think Bates is really good. Oh yeah, no, no. I liked him a lot in uh, Taste of Blood of Dracula, mm-hmm. which I really need to rewatch now that I've I've seen a little bit more of these. I kind of looking back on it, I might have been a little bit unfair to Taste of Blood of Dracula, although I approached it and. I, I feel like it was reasonable at the time for me to respond to it in that way. I just thought some of the elements of, you know, it just kind of, again, it kind of becomes a little bit more generic uh, as the as the film goes on. No, this one, I actually really like the kind of central conceit of this. And I, I don't, you know, let, let's talk about the positives. I really like the idea that this guy kind of, you know, shows up and then he just falls in love with this woman. And uh, who turns out to be a vampire? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's got the creepy sex comedy thing. It's even get it's even worse than uh, Lorelai's grasp because it's like completely like I mean he's this predatory character. Oh yeah, I know? was gonna say I was gonna yeah. say this is this is like an eighties sex comedy. No, no, because... no, it's definitely much more. I mean, it reminds me more of like Zapped or you know something like that, where you know because he's actively you know like you could take you could take this plot exactly to the eighties. This young, you know, he's the young. If you, if you take stuff. if you take the vampires out of this, yes. If, if if there's no vampirism in this, and it's just like dude who shows up in an all girls school and he like manipulates the, I mean it's like recruits or the, um what's the the other one the Wynorski one the um oh uh, uh, screwballs screwballs where you know it's only like and now you girls gotta take your tops off you know like exactly it's, it's practically that narrative like yeah. all over again you know and it is kind of like it because it has to be this like vampire story it can't just be like let's just look at titties all day you know right. which this film 
very obviously wants to just show us titties for a while, you know? It gives um, a, a lot in the first half. Oh, yeah, in the first half. And then once you kind of get past that, I don't know, like, it's it's got some some interesting stuff in terms of I kind of liked that kind of character interaction. I'm going to give this film full props for, like, clearly displaying cunnilingus on screen, mm-hmm. you know? Let's not pretend that's not overt cunnilingus. Oh, no, there, you know? there, there is there is a cross-eyed orgasm at least twice in that sex yeah. scene, and she literally like grasps grass. And, yeah, you know, like she, that's how hard she comes. Uh, which you know, hey, nicely done film. You know, I do yeah. not in any way want to uh, say bad things about like that <laughs> element. But it also, it's kind of, it feels like it doesn't really know what it's trying to do in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, I feel meanders. like it's, it kind of goes all over the place. It, it's got, it's also got the, uh, this kind of interesting character who's way into genealogy, who yeah. um, is our, is our kind of, uh, kind of comb over, you know, dweebish guy who's a uh, little like, oh, the Karnsteins, and I know all the history of their family. Yeah, too, that's, genealogy. that's yeah, Ralph Bates. He's the, uh, he's almost, He's uh, good in this film. I really so, like yeah, him. He's he's really good. Uh, he, it's you probably know, he, the best performance in the film. You know, he who he reminded me of what's his face from um, Back to the Future, plays the dad in Back to the Future. Oh, oh, um, that Crispin, is, Glover. And, Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover. He reminds me of Crispin Glover in this a lot. I could, I can, again, it feels it feels a little bit more like an eighties, like it, like uh-huh. a bad film from the eighties, as opposed to a bad film from the seventies, and like. That's interesting. That's that's kind of like what's going on here. Like what yeah. what is, you know? It just it it just kind of feels like a conceptual mess. It feels like they don't really know what's going on. They don't really have an idea. It's just sort of oh, we're gonna put some boobs on screen. Like I don't even remember how this film ends. Oh, I do remember how it ends. That's right because. <laughs> they, they burn her and it's they, they burn her but like it doesn't matter because no you know yeah it's like, it's 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 badly done like the ending is almost well, there's, a, there's a right there's a love triangle right, right. because again yeah. i rewatched this six hours ago and i have so little memory <laughs> of like what fucking happens again in the movie. again laurelie's grasp because the the sort of like head like the head teacher or whatever, uh, Susanna Leigh as Janet Playfair. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of the same as the, uh, the girl in the Laurelie's grasp. Who's, you know, like the, the teacher, yeah. or whatever, you know, yeah, like, I know. it almost makes me think that Osario directed Laurelie's grasp, maybe kind of cribbed a little bit from this. <laughs> I mean, it's a fairly, I mean, the idea of doing kind of doing a love triangle involving a monster or a vampire is not like, you know, I mean, Laurelie's grasp just happens to be like way, way better than this. And maybe that, yeah, but I mean, you, you got know. the girl, you got the girl school element. Like it is yeah, yeah, yeah. like overtly. Here's this, school that really doesn't make yeah, sense so it's somebody, sexy girls somebody saw this and went like oh i can do better mm-hmm. because this is pretty bad no there's a love triangle and you and i kind of liked the love triangle a little bit because i really i actually did like the janet playfair character uh, also Susanna lee is really hot in this film she is and, yeah um, yeah Again, it's not that I went and looked for other films involving her to no, us, no. for us to possibly cover in the future. Um, I mean, it's it's like every young woman in all these films is super hot. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like you were saying, they were casting like models for these. Yeah. They, well, and 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 that's what the film is. You know, let's not let's not pretend that isn't. But I think she's also got a really nice presence, and I think she's oh, no, really she's like good actress. Know, she's, she she really likes this ritual of strange well, she's... because he's cute and he's he's intelligent. You know, she's kind of into him. She wants to get that dick in her. 
mm-hmm. which is fine. But he's she's only got his eyes for this like vampire character. And I feel like the vampire, even Carmilla, like I don't get that she really has a you it's, know like it's, it's weird because it, it feels like her resurrection has left her unable to quite figure out where she is and what she's doing. Mm-hmm. It, she she seems very confused uh, several in several times. Like at the same time, she's she she's definitely trying to protect herself because she's I mean, trying what's to. She, what's she doing in this finishing school? Like I just I, I, the whole uh, well, like, it, it it takes from the plot of the first film, Vampire Lovers, where again you have these two Kernstein characters who drop her off into the finishing school just like they were dropping her off into these families in the first film which is, there. there's some sort of weird connection there, like thematic connection that's never really fully explained why would you drop her off and leave yourself possibly exposed as being vampires and stuff. Like, it it doesn't quite make sense. I don't think they really thought it out. I, I felt like, let's take the vampire lovers plot Let's recycle it into this with the girl school thing and change it up a bit. And it never really quite comes together in the same way. It feels like the love triangle is sort of at the core of what it's trying to do. But it it just kind of, I don't know, the whole thing just kind of lays flat. I mean, the performances are good. Like, there's a lot of, like, really nice, particularly with uh, Susanna Lee is is playful. Mm -hmm. I think she's got some really nice moments to where she kind well, of she's, realizes, like, this guy is kind of a douchebag, you know? She's again, the hero of the story, really. Oh, no, she definitely is yeah. the hero of the story. One thing that I ran into with this film a little bit is that it's got, like, you know, again, watching all three of them kind of back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, you know, there are a lot of fairly generic-looking blondes in these films. Mm-hmm. And I am I struggle sometimes to remember which film had which character doing which thing but particularly unless for a vampire marcella and uh janet playfair other than the fact that playfair wears her hair slightly differently it's really easy to get confused like there's one like flashback sequence where you're kind of like looking back and kind of looking at all the little incidents that kind of led to this moment of no horror or whatever and i legitimately am like i can't really tell exactly what i'm trying to get from this because these two people look just a little bit too similar for me to like remember what you want me to remember and maybe okay. that's just kind of on me to yeah cuz um, i i didn't get that personally like i i can tell you from uh well it's not that i can't him. it's not that i can't tell i i have a little bit of face blindness just as a just as a person Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something that, that I just struggle with a bit and maybe just kind of rewatching it. I'm just kind of, I could probably piece it together if I sat down and, you know, sort of like watched it in detail, but, right. uh, you know, that sequence in particular just kind of, just kind of left me a little bit cold because I'm just like, I, I know you're trying to kind of just, but I don't know why you're repeating this at this point. And it, yeah. it just kind of leads me to more and more of the kind of confusion of, I don't really know what's going on in this film in terms of like, I know there's a love triangle. I know that I'm supposed to think that this guy's being, he's trying to seduce this woman. He's trying to seduce Carmela, but at the same time he's mesmerized by her. And like, she kind of seems vaguely, I don't really care, but Hey, you gave me some good orgasms, but then also She's really, I don't know. There's, it just feels like there's a lot going on, but there's yeah, not, there's, there's not like a through line. There's not, there's, like, there's you know. holes, there's big holes in the script. And it, it seems like the main plot of this, like the main thrust of this, is basically, as far as you know, the writer's perspective is I must me to you to prove you're not a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it seems like it's the plot, so, like, it's just so like 
vaguely rapey kind of thing that's yeah. kind of going on with this guy. Yeah, no, I mean, which just comes down to like it feels like an '86 comedy sort of thing. Yeah, um, exactly. Because he's yeah. he feels really dumb. Because I mean, Ralph Bates has done all this research on the Karnsteins, uh-huh. and he knows that this is Carmilla, and he wants to serve her, and she just instantly, okay, I'll look really sexy and stare at you as you explain all this shit and explain how you hid one of the bodies and how you've protected me. And now I can eliminate you because you're a loose end and get rid of you. And mm-hmm. so he he reads all of his research and he's like, oh shit, this seems like she might be a vampire. I should question her about this. You're dumb as fuck because it's obvious she's a fucking vampire. And he's like, have sex with me and prove you're not a vampire. Basically, it's like it's like a come on line. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you have sex with me, I won't burn you at the stake. You know. And that's, mm. You know. No, I I do. There there is an element to where like the like the headmistress, like the countess or whatever, she's you know keeping sweeping this under the rug because like oh the reputation of the school or whatever. This one girl's father who's been murdered, the, the girl has been murdered, and then he ends up kind of being the thing that instigates the final third of the film. Right. All the like love triangle stuff that we've been watching for like forty five minutes doesn't matter at all. Doesn't matter at all. Yeah, know? and that's where it just kind of feels like I I wish that. I wish that they had found a way to sort of integrate this, all this a little bit better. And maybe it's intended to be sort of a, a bait and switch where like this mm. thing where like the, the character who dies at the beginning, who would normally be just kind of the throwaway character her death ends up being, I mean, there is some kind of interesting stuff there, but it, it just feels undercooked. It just feels like it's kind of grinds yeah, this... kind of plot points and uh... there's some good stuff in it. I mean, I definitely say, I mean, all three of these films are worth watching. Yeah. This is the least of the three, uh, but it's still it's still not actively bad, you know. Yeah, the, the don't take Ralph Bates' take on this as one of the worst films ever because it's definitely not. It is definitely the lesser of the trilogy in part because this is one of these films that was basically just cursed with production problems. Originally, Terrence Fisher was going to be directing this, and he broke his leg, so they had to switch directors at the last moment. Apparently, there's some script writing problems. Ingrid Pitt was supposed to come in here, but she turned it down because the script was so bad. Ralph Bates was cast on short notice. And because... she's in the Time Monster, so you can only imagine how bad the script is. And, and Ralph Bates was cast short notice as well because Peter Cushing was supposed to play that part. But this was around the time that his wife was ill and eventually died. So uh, he had to basically get out of this and apparently there was just another plethora of bad production problems with this one so you can kind of see that in the script where it kind of meanders and then goes in different directions and doesn't focus really too much you know and and in that case it kind of makes sense and you got to kind of give this film credit that it's as good as it is considering all those sort of problems oh yeah no i mean again it's it's a you know this isn't terrible. It's just a little bit dull, and it's a little bit... Even saying dull, I mean, I just... I mean, I've kind of said it. It's not even necessarily that it's dull. It's that there's not a clear idea about kind of what it's trying right. to be. I, I, th- I think the ending, like, really lets the film down. Like, it doesn't go to anything that's good. Like it, and, yet, and yet, if that ending had been on a different film, I think it would have been a really effective ending. Yeah. I, if we had just said, okay, we're going to do a movie about this love triangle. Mm-hmm. Done, you know, you'd have the Lorelai's grass, but you might even have a better version of that because you could kind of clean it up. You could kind of do the Hammer Horror version. You could do the girls' school. You could do all the tits, and you could do all the like. You could you could do kind of a a film that's about that, but it 
it kind of like none of that really leads anywhere. Yeah. Like at the very end, and it just sort of, oh, and now I'm with you now because my vampire girlfriend, like, you know, got stabbed through the heart with a burning. <laughs> yeah. Know, very, very convenient. Like, yeah, I know. Hey, my vampire girlfriend's dead, but, you know, we can fuck. But, you know, you're still here. There's a place in my heart that burns for you just as, you know, my burning vampire heart girlfriend. Uh, yeah, now take your top off, basically. It's yeah. like. That's pretty much that's pretty much the thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not as good as the other two films. Yeah, yeah. Definitely not. I'm trying to imagine, like, if I had watched this one just absent the other two, would I would I like it a little bit more? And I think I think I might be willing to give it a little bit more of a pass, or yeah, there's sort of, you know, because there are there, a lot of films where you know we kind of go through it and we only do like one film at a time, and it's kind of like. Yeah, that's fine. You know, like, yeah, it's it's worth a watch, you know. Right. Whereas this right. one kind of suffers a little bit in comparison. Also, these three film episodes, it really is easy to get, like, a lot of this stuff just kind of gets jumbled. Confused, you know. You know? Yeah. Um, but, and I mean, even though, again, like we said, this this is not a trilogy that has continuity between its no. or thematic trilogy, but still, this is definitely a lesser of the, the oh, three. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. It, it just really doesn't hold up compared to the other two. It's still decent. I mean, I could look at you naked all day. <laughs> That's all. Well, there's that. <laughs> yeah, and and Janet Playfair, Susanna Lay is excellent in her role. Like, yeah, I think I think we've kind of said it. There's a lot of really good good stuff in this. It's not that it's not that we're saying it's bad. It's the least of the three, and it's a little bit all over the place and a little bit confusing. So I'll mention here the character of Count Karnstein in this, played by Mike Raven. He was hired mm-hmm. because. He looked a lot like Christopher Lee and sounded a lot like Christopher Lee, except for he had the goatee on, basically. Mm-hmm. like That's the only difference. But you see him once in a while with the uh, sort of uh, Puritan hat with the buckle on it, and I kind of suspect he's supposed to be the same man in black from The Vampire Lovers. He's right. supposed to be the same character, because you also have these sort of Countess character that leaves Ute at the uh, boarding school or whatever, right? I know that audiences today expect a certain degree of we're all online all the time and we all have right. you know, ideas about continuity and expecting you know some sort of payoff to the. I'm unclear if people sitting down for Lust for a Vampire would have necessarily considered it just kind of walking into it a continuation from the Vampire Lovers, right? And, you know, Twins of Evil, I'm not sure that just kind of going to the drive-in or sitting down in the theater, like, you would necessarily, like, kind of, we kind of imagine, we kind of retroactively consider it a trilogy. But yeah, it just, it feels like it's, these things are, I mean, all three of these films came out within a year and, like, what, a year and a half of each other or something? Yeah, basically, like, year and a half, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, they're they're made quickly, they're made on tiny budgets, even though, you know, they, they look good, they're not, these are not super cheap films, mm-hmm. with a lot of the same cast members. <laughs> there is a sense in which the whole point of, let's pay attention to the plot, let's really try to analyze this in detail. Like, this isn't what these films were meant to be. This was, right. this was very obviously meant to be, we're going to do some kind of creepy horror, we're going to do a little bit of, we're going to throw some tits at you, we're going to give you some good, like, gory scenes, uh, you'll eat some popcorn and you'll leave happy. And that's what this film, like, that's, it that's, satisfies on that level. For that's sure. the thing. Tudor Gates was the primary writer on all three of these films. Like he's, he's the through line through all this. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering if he had any intentions to like make this a really close trilogy or if he was just recycling elements. I mean, 
I think, I mean, they, they adapted the same fucking story three times. Yeah. Like, in three completely different ways. If you look at, I mean, the first film, The Vampire Lovers, has a kind of pretty clear one-to-one connection with the original story. It, certainly by the time you get to Twins of Evil, I mean, this is basically a completely separate... Right. I mean, if you didn't have the Karnstein name in it, you would not connect this to no. like the original at all. And even Lust for a Vampire, I mean, it's got a little bit of the kind of lesbian stuff kind of going on. But again, all you have to do is rename the character, and yeah. suddenly it's a completely new story, you know? So there is a little bit of... You know, we're just we're just kinda playing on the name maybe or like I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's like Again, that's that just sort of boils down to, you know, people sorta of call it the Carnstein trilogy, but it may have never really been intended to be anything like that. It's just what sort of people watching it today kind of consider it as more than anything else. Well, and I and I wonder, like, if it was it sort of an advertising thing at the time? Uh, I don't think so. Never. Or sort of even even like among like the fans or whatever, you, you got to imagine there were like I don't know were there like magazines where people were like you know follow were there like devoted Hammer Horror fans in 1971? <laughs> sure, you you know, know what I'm I'm sure there was I'm sure there was some sort of community there, but I mean fandom as we know it was born out of uh, Star Trek fandom and it was born yeah. a little bit later than this you know like Star Trek convention convention started up like based on that but. I don't know. It's just hard to like kind of get in the mindset of how how they imagined an audience to be consuming all this. I mean, comic books in the the Silver Age comic. There's there's this superdickery.com, which I I read twenty years ago or something. Mm-hmm. Not quite twenty years, maybe like ten, fifteen. But uh, you know, and they would just kind of run like old Silver Age comic covers. And like gorillas show up like every like every so many months there'd be a cover with super gorillas fighting Superman or whatever, you know. Yeah. You know, you look into it, it's like, well, yeah, like the, the companies had realized that their core audience basically aged into and out of reading these every seven months. So we just repeat the same stories. Right over and over and over again. And I think there's an element of, of that to this sort of thing, you know, that where it's like makes sense, you know, yeah. people aren't people aren't paying that close of attention to it. So we can just kind of like, oh, the last one made money because people liked the lesbian vampires. So we'll do more lesbian vampires. Yeah, you know? and you know, there, there's definitely that element to it. Although at the same time, the timeline is definitely different here. The, the gap in readership in a comic book is not the same. Oh as, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a, a, a direct one to one. I mean, those are like right. kids reading like comic books on newsstands, you know, and in the fifties. And this is, you know, like there's a little bit more kind of media knowledge there. But even then, I don't know that if you're like 16 years old going to a movie theater in in Britain in 1970 you're necessarily thinking oh there was another film with lesbian vampires that i could have seen last year i really do want to hear somebody's take on that like someone who was watching movies in that period as a kid in the theaters in britain if they have any insight on what the culture was and is is it was it just you know disposable entertainment for them or was there like a sort of a fandom there where oh the next hammer film and they were picking up on the tropes and the connections to the previous films was there anybody doing that i mean i imagine there must be somebody doing that we've mentioned doctor who a couple of times in this and Mm -hmm. i mean there were sitcoms making jokes about obsessive Doctor Who nerds within a year of Doctor Who beginning to air. Oh, yeah. 
the idea of there being like hammer horror nerds is not kind of beyond my comprehension right as of like 1970 but it's also these kinds of films horror films and this this is not me being insulting towards this at all you know but horror films and titty flicks and that sort of thing when you had film fans who would you know know all the like kind of big releases and would know all the kind of a oscar films and all that sort of thing you know right. and the, you know the the big prestige pictures I don't know that the people who are really paying attention to that stuff really cared about sort of the bargain basement stuff and the, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I just, it strikes me as sort of an interesting kind of exercise. I mean, you know, we can kind of focus on it. I mean, I can just download the damn thing and watch all three of these back to back to back right. in an afternoon if I choose to and, you know, put subtitles on it and I can look up all the actors and see how they all died and everything because I'm looking at this stuff almost 50 years later. Mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody at the time had anywhere near that level of kind of knowledge of what this stuff was doing. It's, it, I, think, yeah. I think people approached it a lot more casually. And I think that the creators were, without any kind of dis- disparagement of their professionalism, I don't know that the creators were necessarily saying like, well, people are really going to be paying attention to this. And so we need well, to... Well, yeah, to be fair, at this point, movies were disposable. They had a finite lifespan. Yeah, there's you, there's you, no home video market. At you know, you, you ran home, it through the theater and video, it was done. Home video is a decade away at this point. Yeah. Even so, the fledgling home video is a decade yeah. away. So, so you ran your movie through the theaters, through the chain. Uh, some people had more uh, prolific releases than others. Mm-hmm. And then your movie was done, and you moved and on to the next one. Maybe if it was popular, it would show up in like revivals, or it would revivals. show up in repertory yeah. theaters, or it would show up in like kind of the second run, or you know whatever. But almost nothing was, you know, you saw it when it came out, or it was done. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, if if you and I were watching movies back then, like if we were this age back then watching movies, and we're in this period now, if we were still alive at this point, <laughs> if be- I was forty years old, and if I was. I mean, I'm not 40, but if we were 40 years old in 1971, that would mean, you know, we were like young teens in World War II, right? Yeah. Like, so, I mean, we would now be in our, I mean, we'd now be 90 years old, you know? The idea that we could see this stuff now revised and in perfect, you know, crystal clear HD, that would the, kind of be the, mind-blowing. The, the completely not pirated version that I watched mm-hmm. For this podcast probably looks better than the version that almost anyone actually watching the film in 1971. That, that's right, because a lot of these, a lot of these films, you weren't getting really a lot of prints of them. There would be like a few prints made, and they would be run through the theaters multiple times, and they would be pretty degraded <laughs> by the time some people saw them. So, yeah. Particularly these TV films. I mean, that was the whole thing. I mean, even now, everything is sort of a digital uh, production. Everything is a, a digital presentation. There's not a sense of sort of like second run theaters, like kind of getting like degraded. But even even when I was a teenager, even when I was in my kind of teens and early 20s, there were like the dollar theaters and they would literally just get kind of left over. If you saw a film in like the big the big you know kind of first run and then you kind of went and saw it again in the in the kind of later theaters you definitely see like scratch marks and all kinds of stuff on films um you know even even with just you know a couple of months worth of you know just repeated viewings over time i've literally bought tickets for films like me personally in the late 90s 
bought tickets for films to where they had to warn us, oh, there's a scratch on this print. And we just want to <laughs> let you guys know that there's a scratch on the print, you know? And, the, you know, I was like, I don't care. I want to see the film anyway. <laughs> you know, I, I still remember watching movies the year they were released as a kid in theater when back in the day where my parents were taking me movies all the time, you know, mm-hmm. just before I was a teenager, sort of moving into teens, where I was watching movies where there was dirt on the fucking prints like yeah, yeah. scratch and dirt so it was a common thing it was it was the way it was i mean it's nice to get you know the clean digital presentation there's mm-hmm. no i'm not i'm not saying like oh like if you don't remember dirt on your prints and you're clearly uh, you know <laughs> not a real film fan you know yeah yeah i think we forget sometimes kind of watching these things and viewing them outside of their context kind of how they're no this was a a fun little digression, which meant we didn't have to yeah. talk about Lust for a Vampire anymore, which is probably the, the way to go, you know? Yeah, uh, DVD info for this, 2001 Anchor Bay DVD from their Hammer Horror collection. There has not been a Blu-ray uh, of this yet, from as far as I can tell. And this is sort of like the red-headed stepchild of the series, I guess, kind of thing. I'm kind of amazed there's not a trilogy release. Yeah, well, I I think they're all they all sort of follow under different licenses, different oh, companies. Yeah. Have, so. And there's not co- quite enough money in in release of them that you know they can yeah. kind of because once there's enough money over, they just sort of like oh we'll pay you you know such percentage of whatever, and then everybody shakes hands and then it gets released. But you know, yeah. I'm sure like Scream Factory or Show Factory or you know uh, Synapse or something at some point might pick this up, you know, but uh, in 10 or 15 years, it's all going to be scream- streaming anyway, and it won't matter. Yeah. Anymore, you know? And I mean, yeah. the, the, the print I have on DVD from the anchor, the old anchor Bay looks great. I mean, um, I will, I will say that both the vampire lovers and twins of evil are available to stream renting on uh, Amazon. It's like a two or $3 rental or whatever. How did uh, the uh, prints look on that? That's not the way I watch them. Oh shit! Um, oh, <laughs> I'm I'm sure there are similar prints to the ones that I uh, I, I did view. Uh, yeah. Lust for Vampire. The reason I because I was going to just you know watch them all. I was going to just pay the rental fee and watch them. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, actually, I did watch. I did watch the Vampire Lovers on Amazon. It looked fine. Uh, sure. And I've checked it with another print that I made. I acquired through some, yet. through some you know other source may or may not have you know but lust for vampire is not available you can put it into amazon and it just says you know this this title is not available to stream so there's got to be some kind of rights issue with lust for vampire yeah if if you can't find it to buy anywhere um just to throw this out there um i bought a fairly expensive a copy of the old Anchor Bay just to have it in my collection. You can buy a DVD-R version that's uh, fairly prolific on eBay and uh, different stores and stuff, and I would recommend that because fuck DVD-Rs. They're not good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see this on Daily Motion in two parts as well if you search uh, for it. Although it has like it's Russian or Czechoslovakian or something subtitles on it as well. But, you <laughs> know, so done. Yeah. <laughs> but again, like just just getting back to the whole idea, like that th- there is a certain charm to the idea of you know I'm watching this on a on a little on a tiny screen in kind of choppy quality with uh, weird subtitles because that's just the version that's available to me, which uh, sort of embraces the spirit of watching these films much more so than buying a DVD, like buying a $30 Blu-ray, like spending $30 on a Blu-ray of this film completely misses the point of what this 
feel. And I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a Blu-ray of this film, if, right? You know, but that's not the way this was intended to be. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah, absorbed. yeah. Movies have changed in the uh, digital age and the yeah. prolification of digital releases of this shit. But uh, yeah, so um, Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? I'm on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. Uh, if you want to follow me there, I do have a podcast. Uh, we haven't updated it for a while, but my uh, British friends and I do a podcast about uh, movies about history and the history they're about. It is uh, called Wrong with Authority. Uh, you can find that at wrongwithauthority.blogspot.com. Doctor Who is coming back, and I think Oyster Space Band's coming back for the oh, nice. Doctor Who. So uh, I, th- I think that's I think that's something that's happening. Um, hey, uh, Pex lives just released an episode, so yeah, bring yeah. back to Doctor Who. You know, Pex. The thing with Pex lives is that uh, Kevin is almost impossible to get a hold of, and James is very lazy. And I say this with <laughs> absolutely no disrespect to James. He he kind of he really likes doing the oh yeah we do this about once a month and I don't have to edit it and uh, that's that's uh, that's. I fully respect James in that decision. Too. That's my relationship with James. We do City of the Dead once a month, and I don't have to edit it. <laughs> yeah. Well, my relationship with this podcast is like I watch the movie the day we record, and then I don't have to edit it. So you know, we're all we're all using each other. We're there. all That's using each other. Reason. I have been I have been trying to. I've been working out. So wrong with authority. There's an episode there. I'm literally sitting on an episode that will be a really good episode when I make the time to sit and edit it. But I've been fighting with the technical aspects of it because like when you have four people on a podcast and uh, you don't have a master recording, it's a fucking nightmare. It is. And so like once I get like a clean, just master recording of all of us talking for the entire time that we were talking, right. uh, then the actual like artistic edit or the, the kind of content edit will go very quickly. But I, I've just been struggling through that. But that one is about Birth of a Nation, the 1915. Um, and I'm really excited to try to get that out. But I really don't want to do any more work on that because I've already put in more hours into that podcast edit <laughs> than I want to have put into the entire podcast edit because I've been fighting with the edit on that. And uh, anyway, um, so that will be out eventually because I really want people to be able to listen to that because we had a really nice that conversation. That's really good. It yeah. was. It was very good. And uh, not only that, but I have done more research since we have recorded that podcast. And <laughs> it's there are so many layers to this thing. Anyway, um, that will be out eventually at some time. And you will find that on the Wrong With Authority podcast feed. So go subscribe to that podcast. It's yes. very good. It's very, it is very, very good. You can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links. Join the Facebook group. They must be destroyed on Facebook to find out what the fuck's going on in this podcast. They must be destroyed on Facebook. That should be... Did, is that what I said? That's what you said. Yeah, no. That, that should be the name of our, of, our podca- of, our, of our podcast group. They supposed to just on Facebook. Can I rename the group? Is that something I can? I don't do? know. You should look into that. I'm not on Facebook anymore. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, they must be destroyed on site on Facebook for now. 
Yeah, if if we can rename that as the Must Be Destroyed on Facebook, that's the new name of the group. I'm looking into that because that's that's awesome. Well, we can create a new group and invite the six people that like. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they'll all follow us. The, the, the six people actually listen, and the seventy other well, people are I'm, just members and like forgot about it. I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that like more people post in that group than listen to the podcast. Probably, yeah. We're looking at you, Cameron Sullivan. Uh, <laughs> I love that I get Cameron Sullivan updates on my phone and like three different groups that he posts stuff right. in. And then Mike Murphy will also like, post, you know, and then that's every, every uh, once in a while, Mike Murphy will throw us a bone. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I acknowledge your existence. <laughs> Thanks, Mike Murphy. That's that's how that's how Mike Murphy rolls because he's he's rolling in the big bucks with that BBC uh, <laughs> thing, you know. He's rolling in that like several hundred listeners, you know. Like, yeah, he is. Yeah. Motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> um, not sure what we're doing next time. Uh, this is my suggestion. The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, also known as Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which is a zombie film that is very, very good, and I think you would like it a lot, Daniel. Okay. So I think that should be our next episode, and that would be a great transition into the last little bit of stuff on our list, uh, actually, for uh, our sort of horror-themed stuff, because uh, we're going to be moving into the Blind Dead films, and um, as well as Dead and Buried from the 1980s. So uh, I think, you know, jumping into some zombies and getting out of this fucking vampire stuff we've been doing. We've been doing so many fucking vampires, man. And I did did really enjoy, you know, as much as I kind of like bitched a bit about Lust for Vampire, I did really enjoy the slight change of pace with the the kind of fun, sexy lesbian stuff. Um, Yeah, yeah. That's why I wanted to do all the three of these films in one episode, just like to clear the board of vampire films because we've just been doing way too many. It's yeah, like, we've done like we didn't. I've literally like when you when we do these kinds of films, I just kind of let Lee just you know, you just tell me what to watch. I'll watch it. I'll show up. It'll be fine. You know, yeah. that's that's my process for this. It'll be fine. That's that's <laughs> you know, that's how I approach it. Yeah. Whatever, I'll watch. It'll be fine. Lee, Lee, you'll clean it up, right? You know. So yeah, fine. yeah. I'll... I'll solve all problems. Um, Which basically, like, don't edit anything out. Just let the thing run. But nobody's listening, so nobody cares. It's fine. It doesn't matter what edits I do. It's it's all for like the five people listening to this shit who who know what we do. But uh, and we love you people, by the way. Thank you. We do. We do. Including you, CB Falls. (laughs) Yeah, CB Falls, who doesn't listen but retweets and shares everything you you motherfucker you beautiful motherfucker you that's, uh, that's a, we don't care if you listen we just care that you increase our social media presence so eventually we can put ads on this bitch that's the that's the whole <laughs> you know yeah coming we're gonna soon. be so, we're, we're gonna be getting millions from squarespace pretty soon that's the, yeah uh, squarespace is, and is what is it sherry's berries that's it sherry's berries <laughs> and uh sacks underwear that's another one that's prolific uh, oh the great courses that, that would be my goal is to get is to get the great courses to let us advertise for them you know <laughs> do you like listening to podcasts about where two vaguely in the bag hosts talk about obscure movies nobody's ever seen from 1967. If so, <laughs> you should be listening to The Great Courses, which is... <laughs> Jesus. Okay, we got to end this. Thank you very much, Daniel, and uh, thank you 
for the five people who listen to this, and uh, we'll be back next time with Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For other episodes, our Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Facebook group links, as well as podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.